morning. My name is John Gitango, publisher of The Elephant, and today it is my pleasure to speak to be speaking this morning to Ms. Rekma Hersi, who's a partner with Gateway Global NLP, which is a professional services uh, company devoted to the Islamic economy, and we'll, we'll discuss a bit that a bit of that about that for later. I just first wanted to ask uh, Rekma, where are you? You're in, you're in Kenya. I'm based in Nairobi. Yes. Okay, you're in, in, you're in Nairobi. How are you keeping? How is lockdown? How's your family? How you know? How are you surviving coronavirus? Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, thank you, uh, John, for the uh, opportunity to have a conversation with you. It's a pleasure for to be here with you. I must confess that. Uh, uh, these are interesting times uh, that we are living in. I'm grateful that physically we are all well as a family, those around me. I do have family that are health workers, doctors um, who are on the front line. But I think uh, more than ever, it's um, I have great pride in what they're doing because they're truly serving humanity. I think for somebody who traveled as much as I did because of the nature of my work, this has now allowed me a lot more time to reflect and uh, also prioritize really what are the things that are important and I'm sure I'm not alone in this a lot of us are going through the motions of trying to understand what what our lives look like sort of still and not in constant motion but I also think this is a great time for us to come together and see how we can help each other as humanity so trying to keep a positive outlook great i i i wanted to you know to ask you we're in the middle of this um pandemic uh, and everyone's sort of learning to navigate and try to survive with a new normal that hasn't yet become clear even though it's been called a new normal uh, what's the only thing that is unique about it is that we don't know much about it it's, yeah exactly it's a complete loss of predictability and especially now we, are, we hope this today is the 28th of april that we are we're having this conversation and at the end of this month, and there are a lot of people who who owned uh, who own their own businesses, um, people who are petty traders, people who have to work every single day, the people who pay rent. You know, you hear of organizations where salaries have been cut, you know, by forty percent. Um, so in, in the economy is shrinking um, because essentially we've been in lockdown. Um, the economy was already in trouble before that. Uh, before all of this, but recently, you know, I mean, if you think of the tourism industry, has just been like the key was turned off, you know. Yeah. Uh, so it, it has a, a profound effect. You know, some airlines have gone. Uh, South African Airways, I believe, went under last week. Yeah. So, 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 you know, the economic ramifications are kicking in, and you know, and so that leads me to asking about uh, your your background in Islamic finance. Uh, and and um, how that system of finance works, and how how uh, one who is engaging with it in it at this time can perhaps benefit. Absolutely, no. Thank you for the question, John. Islamic finance or ethical finance, uh, which is what I uh, prefer to use, uh, just for the simple reason that once we use the term Islamic finance, it usually polarizes people. Um, and, and, and what it is, is it's an industry that actually caters to 
to humanity and not just a segment of people, although the principles, the founding principles are faith-based. Um, Islamic finance was started in our country um, about more than about 10 years ago. Uh, globally, about maybe we can say in the last 20 to 30 years, um, uh, slightly more. So not as old as uh, its conventional counterpart, but um, very strong um, alternative to what uh, people wanted to um, do, the, uh, interact and uh, intersect with their money. Yeah. When we started, um, when Islamic finance was started um, here in our own country, uh, the idea was to offer an alternative uh, way of doing business for people who did not want to engage with uh, principles they felt were contrary to their faith. The one most known by everybody is interest. interest and yeah. the idea of engaging with interest because in Islamic finance, money is not seen to be a commodity. Money is seen to be nothing but a medium of exchange. We put the value on the money and in sometimes it's not backed by anything, right? And I think now more than ever, we're going to see that too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, in Islamic finance, the distinct, distinctive feature is um, trade. Um, money must be backed by real assets. So it must be tied to a real economy. Okay. Um, the idea of money being a commodity is a very recent concept, right? If you look at um, any of the faith-based religions, and here I talk about the Abrahamic faiths, which is Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, there was always an uh, abhorrence of interest, which we called usury. Yes, we yes. sort of made the word more palatable by calling it interest right. because usually it had such a big connotation to it. Um, and so the idea that you make money off of money is considered abhorrent in Islam. So Muslims um, or people of the Islamic faith understood that it doesn't matter whether you're particularly spiritual or practicing in your faith, this was seen to be an extremely abhorrent um, um, aspect of um, of doing business, and so Muslims preferred to stay away from it. It doesn't matter, educated, not educated, old, young, everybody collectively agreed that this was problematic. And so in order to do business, they had to come an alternative way. So that's how Islamic finance was introduced. Islamic finance also promotes the idea of equity. And equity is fairness. It means you benefit and I benefit. So we both share profit and loss. Yeah. And there's a system on how this is done. And there's contracts and there is um, agreement that control this um, aspect. More often than not, when I tell this to people, the question I am asked is how then do banks make money? Because there was an idea that the only way we can grow is if others don't. And Islamic finance comes to change that dialogue and says, look, growing and doing business together collectively is actually beneficial, not only to you as the individual, yes. but to the economic system at large. Yes. Obviously, more, those that are benefiting from the system are a little bit more resistant to the idea of equity in this regard, yes. right? And then you have the uh, concept, or again, that says, look, not only are we going to determine how you make, how you understand money, we're also going to restrict where you do business. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, if you look at the conventional system, um, or what we consider the normal system, um, and I say normal here because, again, what is normal, right? Yeah. Uh, these are very new concepts, not just in our world, but in our continent as well. So the idea that I can come and say, John, yes, you are a functioning, a, a sane adult who can do whatever you want with your money, yeah. but as a financial institution, I'm going to restrict where you want to invest or what you want us to give you money for because what you want to do it for will be harmful to society uh -huh. so trading in the casinos or the gambling industry um obviously the alcohol and the beverage industry of that nature yeah. um uh, adult arms weapons tobacco which most people, if you ask just your general person, will tell you that these are problematic unless we're profiting from them. And, and this is not only a sort of faith-based, people who are faith-based who agree with this. There's an incredible story out of the Scandinavian countries. I think a gentleman by the name of Peter Stoddard, who is one of the um, wealthiest men in that part of the world. Um, he's a hotelier. Um, probably now there's a lot more challenge in obviously in that industry. And when he, he um, um, in his hotels uh, offers cable TV and in, in his cable TV, there was an option where you could buy um, pornography or the adult um, industry. <clears throat> when he made a connection that there was a direct link between that industry and human trafficking of women, mm -hmm. He made the ethical decision to ban it in his hotels because now it becomes more about preserving our societies, fighting for human rights than just profiting. And that's what—that's the dialogue that Islamic finance brings into um, our communities that I think as ethical societies, um, we can appreciate the principles. So having said that, and there's a long list of other examples, but I will just stop there by saying the, the concept was started with offering an alternative system, but the alternative system was seen to be just a financial system. Um, although the vision was how do we support the lower levels of our society so that we begin to build financial inclusion and support poverty alleviation initiatives, um, I feel in our industry, currently as it stands in our country, became a lot more commercialized. Yes. And, um, and which is not a bad thing, but it was contrary to the visions that we started with. Now, if we are to look at our country and just sort of how things have progressed within the last 10 years, um, we have several fully-fledged financial institutions, Islamic financial institutions. We have several windows and we have an insurance firm and we even have a microfinance um, institution. And they're all working collectively to see how to make an impact in the society that we live in. Obviously, this has now brought a different dynamic. And I think this is where uh, there needs to be reflection on our society, uh, on, our, on the traditions and the principles of what Islamic finance started with, which is um, equity, justice, fairness, and collective growth. And how this can be done, and I'm going to use the example of Malaysia, um, is Malaysia decided to broaden the understanding of what compliance is. 
what they call Sharia compliance or so Islamic finance compliance. Yes. So interest, we all know about it. Okay. But the conversation Malaysia introduced, because remember, um, before 2009, we weren't necessarily too concerned about co corporate social responsibility. Business was done just as business. But now we started to see more effort in caring about our environment. So there was conversations of ESG, there was more CSR, but Malaysia decided to implement a concept within their financial system, especially Islamic finance, to say called value-based index, which is, are you comparing? I, okay, so we have determined you're compliant. So you're not selling alcohol, you're not selling pork, you're not selling any of that. But are you treating your work as well? Uh -huh. Are you paying salaries on time? Yeah. Are you taking care of the people you're responsible for? So now your measure as an institution becomes so much more. Mm -hmm. And it becomes, uh, so you begin to balance your shareholders' considerations mm -hmm. who are looking, looking for long-term investments because anybody who goes to financial institutions is not looking for a quick return, yeah. Um, yeah. at least not in this group. <laughs> Not in this market of ours. Huh? No, it doesn't happen so quickly. So um, if you're looking for long-term investments and you're looking at impact investment, then the idea that not only are we building businesses to become more ethically oriented, but you're also holding them responsible for their activities. And so this system was began in about 2018. And if we were to look at that now in the society we're living in with this COVID pandemic, um, and, and this again is just me theorizing, we don't currently have a system of this nature, yeah. but if our financial institutions were to sit together with their clients um, and say, look, Amongst our, us are people who have real estate, yes. um, um, who are homeowner, who are landlords and landladies or things like that. Is there a way we can work together to offering you opportunities, maybe not immediately, yes. but within the long term, as long as we're working together to take care of our immediate society needs? Okay. Not expelling people out of their homes yes. or finding, uh, and maybe the same people who do have these um, real estate properties can be given further moratorium over paying back their financial responsibilities because of what they're doing for their communities. Yes. So, so looking at, so Islamic finance already had a socio-economic um, implant within the system, but it was never really triggered. Yes. And the reason I wasn't triggered is because we moved to a commercial angle before uh, uh, really fulfilling the vision of what we were looking to do, which was financial inclusion at, at, at its best. So, um, so Malaysia is trying to do, has tried to work within that system. And I think now um, with COVID, obviously, they are finding ways to accelerate. So they're, they're creating loyalty programs where as, um, as, as your clients, you can determine that um, a certain amount goes into the fund. Um, they've set up a fund, the financial institutions, and this can go into furthering um, the work that is being done by the government and, and, and health institutions to fighting this pandemic.
And so for Muslims um, or those of the Islamic faith, there's a concept, and I, and I mean, I think this is a shared idea, but I'm going to speak here as an Islamic finance expert, is the idea of sadaqah or charity, giving of charity. Yes. And, and this charity, now more than ever, is needed in these efforts. And so as an individual, we, I may not have an institutionalized way of collecting this, but banks and financial institutions already have these systems in place. That's right. And so if there is a collaboration between our financial institutions, the clients and the customers and, and our um, authorities, the government here, then we can have systems that um, people feel they are contributing to part of the um, crisis of what we're experiencing. And if people feel they are part of the solution, then I really do think there is no going back to the old way. I think there is, because internally your heart begins to change. I feel there's, you, as an individual, when, like, when you asked, um, you know, how is this? I don't think any of us is ever going to take having a coffee together for granted. Okay. Going back. Yes, it's not something that you're going to be like, oh, you know, it's just no, no, no. There was a time we couldn't sit together. <laughs> there was a time I was afraid you'd make me sick and I'd make you sick. Yes. So I think if we are part of the solution in this regard, so financial institutions need, and Islamic financial institutions need to be more, more about than just deposited, collecting, giving out financial product, uh, you know, loans or products um, for whatever, you know, whatever needs that people have, which is not a bad thing. But I think now it's to accelerate the socioeconomic uh, benefit that is inbuilt. So sure. you have the charity um, uh, system within the Islamic finance um, industry that, and, and also just as a community that that can contribute to the COVID. Um, and I'd like to also maybe interject to something else here. Yes. The other thing that we can, uh, the institutions can work on, again, because they came to fight um, poverty and to support financial inclusion. We know as of last year that we are going to have a locust invasion. Yes. This is something that was said last year, yes. not this year, and now we're here. Yes. And the areas that are highly impacted are still the same areas yes. that are constantly, um, you know, seem to be below um, the margin when it comes to, um, you know, economic growth and things like that. So yes. how do we, um, as people working within the financial, in, um, Islamic financial industry, be long-term thinkers to say, look, this problem was already detected by scientists last year. Yes. We're now where we are, and we're told by June we're going to have maybe 400 times. Yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. So th that is incomprehensible for those of us who cannot even imagine. This is of uh, um, really biblical, Quranic proportions because this has only been read before. Nobody has actually experienced it. So several, how do we work? Hmm? Several billion locusts uh, this time. Yes. Uh, up to 150 kilometers a day. Isn't it crazy? Yeah. But yet, we have been told by FAO and the scientists working within this field that we can work together to stop this as a problem. Now, as Muslims, we're in the current holy month of Ramadan. Mm. This is a month that espouses generosity. It espouses kindness and increase in charity. Yes. 
But more often than not, charity has always been diverted to what I call the norms. So yeah. taking care of the poor, feeding the hungry. Yeah. So it's, it's short-term solutions. Yeah. It's not long-term um, solutions to problems that will have a far-reaching effect. So if within, with the financial institutions and um, research um, organizations can come up with um, a system to say, look, is there a way we can fight this um, invasion? Because the people that we were supposed to be empowering are going to be hard hit anyway. So are, are, we, are, we, are we looking at Islamic finance as just another way to eradicate interest? My argument has always been no. no. Islamic social finance, which is which, you know, in building the philanthropic um, aspects of it, the endowments, uh, the zakah, the giving of alms, 2.5% of uh, those who can afford um, of their money is deducted or required to be given um, every year. Mm -hmm. If we are 1.8 billion in this, on this earth, and we say not even, we just take a mil, 100 million of those yeah. and you multiply that, yeah. we can fund the UN. We can fund these organizations. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, the UN... Um, the UN body responsible for um, migration and humanitarian, you know, settlement, UNHCR, has come up with a zakah fund as a way, as a way to support um, the the refugees that are coming from predominantly Muslim countries. Mm -hmm. And so, what is needed is actually innovation. The solutions already exist, but because we started on a premise of commercial. I'm just doing business as usual. Yeah. Um, they have, I think this pandemic will force us to have a rethink in how we uh, build. And if we, as a community, because you see, we don't, live, we don't live separate to our brothers and sisters of other faiths. We live collectively. So if we are able to offer a solution, then we impact the society around us. We make ourselves better and we make those around us better. And this creates more harmony. Correct. Um, in our communities and offers solutions um, that maybe others haven't thought about um, necessarily. Yeah. Um, I'll ask two questions. Uh, sure. Related, but the first one is a practical one. So yeah. um, uh, I've been building a, uh, a, a small block of apartments somewhere, yeah. uh, hoping to, to, to be able to rent them at some point. Um, coronavirus, COVID has slammed the economy, um, yeah. and and I would like to to go um, to uh, an Islamic banking institution. Yeah, uh, how would it work practically? What what yeah. what, what, what how, yeah. how would it work practically? But and and before I forget, I wanted to ask um, you know what it's like to be doing all that you're doing. Uh, in Ramadan, what, what's Ramadan like this year compared yeah. to, to, to previous years? Yeah. yeah, so I'll start with the Ramadan question and then come back to because I want a clarification on the other question. Yeah. Um, so, so Ramadan for us has always been about um, community and bringing uh, people together. So we've been organizing for the last five years an interfaith iftar 
where we bring everybody together to the table because what we recognize is fasting is not for Muslims alone. Yeah. We share it with our brothers and sisters of other faiths. Yeah. And also, if people are from non-faith backgrounds, you know, for health reasons, have always, you know, um, uh, uh, looked to fasting as a way to, to help themselves. So uh, for the last five years, um, we've come together as, um, um, as a firm. Um, and this was with my previous firm, uh, a while before moving to Gateway, where we organized what was called Share a Date. Yes. And the concept was to share a date because uh, when we moved back, when I moved back to Kenya almost <clears throat> nine, eight years ago, I realized that there were segments of our society who weren't mixing at all. Yes. And I found that very baffling because I thought maybe growing up as a child who had gone to Catholic schools, I was in a convent for high school. Yeah. I grew up very diverse. My family was, my father was very deliberate about ensuring that we grew up in a very diverse environment that I took it for granted that this wasn't the norm. I thought it was the norm. Yeah. Right. And then I realized maybe that was, there was a bit of privilege involved in there mm -hmm. that it's only if you came from certain backgrounds, maybe, and you weren't in the village or things like that. Mm -hmm. And so when I moved back home, we became very deliberate about inviting neighbors, friends, and, uh, you know, people of the faith community to come mm -hmm. and break bread <clears throat> and talk about our shared values. Mm -hmm. And our shared values is if I talk about compassion, you understand compassion. If yeah. you talk about kindness, I understand kindness, but mm -hmm. somehow, as a country, we had started to become polarized. Yes. And um, so, so Ramadan for us was very much about that. And obviously that meant a lot of social gathering, which is not possible now. Yes. Um, and um, also um, was a lot about, um, so I teach um, a class on Islamic law for my Muslim sisters. I also used to uh, be a guest lecturer at uh, USIU um, in their PhD and master's program teaching on Islam and gender, because my background is Islamic law. Mm. And um, I, I, being a Muslim woman who is very open about my faith, yeah. and who's very proud of my African identity yeah. and who considers herself a professional, it's always been interesting navigating those three. Yeah, and, so, and so moving back, I realized that it was my duty to share the knowledge that I had gained um, and my experiences with those around me and just have dialogue yeah. and, and create a safe space where we can ask questions, where it's not dumb. You know, they say, coolies are Jinda. Yes. You know, it's okay to ask a question and, and, and to start learning our faith and our tradition for ourselves because the way the faith started, our blessed prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, Muhammad, his greatest supporter was a woman, yes. his wife, Khadija, yes, who right. was an incredible businesswoman. She was a multi-billionaire by those times, mm -hmm. she was an international businesswoman. She did cross-border trade. How then did we as Muslim women forget that part of our history? How is it that we forgot that part of our legacy? So I would incorporate these conversations in our spaces and say, look, um, you have to aspire for great because we come from great. And Malcolm X was uh, famous for saying, people who don't know where they're coming from don't know where they're going. No. And so as women, we forgot that. And um, there's been a price that we have paid because not only are we unable to pass this legacy to our children and to our community and to our environment, um, we also find ourselves 
sometimes in situations where we feel oppressed yes. and not understood. So Ramadan was, but now we've moved the classes online. So I am teaching them online, which doesn't have the same feel. Yes. Uh, being African again, we're used to seeing each other's reaction. As yes. you say at this point, high-fiving each other in the middle of the conversation. Yes. So that now. Yes. <laughs> so it's been a little bit different. But yes. I think um, this Ramadan, more than ever, um, as a, as a, as a Muslim and as a practitioner of my faith, it shows me that we need to go back to the essence of what the faith is um, and what the essence of Ramadan is, which is, it's a very individual um, uh, practice. Yes. I'm the one who's not eating all day. Yes. I'm the one who's not drinking. I'm the one who's abstaining from certain things. And so to remember that there is a reason as to why we're doing that and to use that as a reflection that maybe as human beings, we haven't been the right vicegerents because we believe that human beings were given the responsibility of the earth. Yes. And the earth has stopped functioning because of us. Yes. I mean, the fact that our pollution is down, yes. <laughs> Yes. that the animals have come out to play okay, yes, <laughs> yes. Right. um then that shows we have not been honorable in fulfilling the obligations we were given yes. and then and maybe this has been the stop button that we needed yes. and i just say this as somebody who has been reflecting that maybe this ramadan we need to focus on what we can do better yeah. not communally but individually yeah, so, so that's what I would say, yeah? yeah? And then to answer your question, um, I just needed a clarification. Do you mean you already have this uh, facility with another bank, or do you want to get this as a new facility? If it's a new facility, it's sort of Islamic banking 101. So this is what I always tell, um, uh, because th this is something I've been asked about many times by people who say, um, as a non-Muslim, for example, would I be given the facility? And this is where I have challenged our financial institutions, myself included, who's part of the system, that we haven't done a good enough job of marketing the product as a value-based product as opposed to just a faith-based product, right? So, so one, the onus, there's been a bit of a, a bad job done there, which we must um, acknowledge and admit to. The second thing is be, you walk up to the bank, um, as an individual and say, I would like a housing product. Yes. The relationship manager will walk you through um, what facilities they have. Okay. And, and generally in Kenya, we have two. Yeah. We have one where you put a down payment and um, the bank uh, pays the rest. And here the relationship is you are partners. Okay. It's not lender borrower because again, as a person who deals with words, you understand the power of words. Lender, borrower, and debt. Power. This is power. There's a power trip there. Yeah. But when I say partnership, yeah. then when I talk about equity and sharing of profit and loss, it is well understood, yeah. right? But I have to say this. We don't live in utopia. We live on planet Earth. Yes. We do have to work within the legal systems of our country. Yes. And so financial institutions do take collapse. They have full authority to do their KYC, yeah. take full um, uh, security or collateral as they see fit. Yes. And if there is an... Um, if there's any opportunity for misrepresentation and negligence, 
on the part of one partner, which is maybe me, who's come to, borrow, uh, to, to, to ask for the financing. Yes. Um, then the bank has, the financial institution has the full power yes. to, 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 to extend the law, yes. right? But, so, the, so the, the, your relationship manager would walk you through that as an option and um, come up with a payment plan just the way you would in a, fin a conventional financial institution. What is different is the nature of the contract and the underlying relationship. Yes. Right. Because this already changes how you would engage and also allows for how the facility will be repaid. That's one. The second one is where you have a um, the financial institution either builds it for you okay. and then rents it out to you. So again, the relationship here is less sore, less see. Okay. Not borrower, not lender. Okay. Right. And let's so and let's see the financial institution here is your landlord. So yes. the, it has the obligations of a landlord yes. and um, it's a bit more flexible um, in, uh, as compared to the other contract. But again, it's the Islamic finance is very driven by the underlying contract, the relationship, yes. how the relationship is governed yes. and the two um the two points that are very, very critical is when there is a default, what are the reasons for default? Yes. If there is negligence and misrepresentation, then there is no, the, the opportunity for equity is taken out. Yeah. Because you're not deserving of equity at that point in time. But if there isn't, like in this situation where you've talked about people have been laid off, that is, COVID is beyond us. It's, it's yes. like un never been seen before you couldn't even factor this into the clause the first major clause yes, yes. the contract but um as human beings we have the ability for empathy and yes. financial institutions are not brick and mortar there's people yes. there yes. and so here they would have to look to see how they can restructure that facility and that's why i was giving examples earlier uh, yes. and that would also um be extended to you because you're a finance, you are the client for the bank. And I just wanted to maybe say something quickly here before you ask me a question. Yes. Islamic finance has grown in Malaysia, not through the Malays, but yes. through the Chinese community uh -huh. because they saw the underlying value proposition of the industry, right? Uh -huh. And because in Malaysia, they, they marketed the industry as an opportunity. Yes, faith-based, but an opportunity. And so people came on board. Um, here, um, one of the things I'm usually very um, uh, critical of in the industry is, let's take out the Arabic words, not necessary. We're not an Arabic speaking community. We're an English and Swahili speaking community. And so we need to use, explain the same things we want to the people as a way to draw people in and not to use terminology that can be considered a barrier. John doesn't need to come and try and figure out how Sharia, he doesn't need to figure all that out unless he enjoys the language, right? Yes, yes. Um, and things like that. So that's what I would say. Yeah. Um, that's for, for me absolutely fascinating. I'm just making some, some notes here. Uh, <laughs> and and you know, all that you've been explaining to me made me sort of uh, want 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 to ask you the question sure. of, of you know you're a young uh, Muslim professional uh, you know 
uh, you know, successfully navigating uh, this sector of yours. But actually, what's it like being a young Muslim woman? Uh, yeah. I know the last I heard of you, you were with uh, Awal. Now you're a global partner for for, for major organizations. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know, so the trajectory is like this, which is great. Yeah. What's it like being a, a young Muslim woman doing that? You, you, you travel a lot, you, you're interacting. And in a sense, banking has still remained a bit of a man's world. So, um, well, thanks for that question. Always a difficult one to answer because um, be I... <laughs> you have to be very careful. Or... Yeah, you know, you have to navigate it in a certain manner. But also, by the very essence of who I am, other than just being a, a young Muslim woman, yeah. um, Whichever space I go to, I cannot remain indiscreet. I stand out regardless of the fact, right? So (laughs) I have been in spaces where it's not predominantly Muslim. And I've had people come up to me and speak really loudly because they thought I couldn't understand them. And then when I'd speak English, they would ask me um, if I had grown up in the U.S. or in in one of the Western countries, and I have to break it to them that I'm born and raised in East Africa and not uh, in any of these other places. And so they're like, you must be privileged. Your family must be, I'm like, no, (laughs) no, very, very normal family, normal background. But also now within the Islamic um, industry, yes, it's been, um, it's been interesting. Um, I, because my journey towards understanding my identity and my faith started with knowledge, I was always very aware of the heritage that I had inherited. Khadija to me wasn't a name. She was a living being. She was the courage um, that I, I needed to go out into the world because she, defi- she defied her time. The Arabs were, the prehistoric Arabs, pre-Islamic, before Islam, were very barbaric. They were burying the young girls, forget having a woman at the helm, and more so marry a man who was poor and younger than her. So she broke every societal norm. So looking up to her allowed me to be bold and courageous and um, you know, sort of treat the path that I went. So when I'd walk into these spaces, my conversation when people would see me as the other or didn't belong, my question to them would be, what tradition were they following? Yeah. Because if they were following the tradition we all ascribe to, yeah. then they cannot unwrite that part of her identity. No. Um, the other wife of the prophet, Aisha, peace and blessings be upon her, was a jurist and a scholar. She was leading and and teaching men the law. And so I had a great I had great women to look up to. So when I'd walk into the (laughs) space when I'd walk into the spaces it depended. Sometimes I was welcome, sometimes people were a bit apprehensive. Um, But as long as um, people felt there was value and um, I've had some incredible mentors, I've had some incredible uh, men uh, brothers, uh, people who I've looked up to, who have opened doors for me and have seen what I can contribute to but I've also had the ones who were sitting in a meeting ask me to take notes because apparently as a woman I'm, 
a lot more adept at taking notes like secretary. And I had to be very quick to say that I am better at counting money yes. than taking notes. <laughs> so maybe they shouldn't trust me with the minutes, but they can always trust me with their treasury. And so you have to find a humorous way to deal with this. Um, um, and I've, I've been, and it's not just the, within the Muslim world. As I've mentioned, I've work, worked in uh, international spaces. Yeah. I've worked for Ernest and Young and uh, other organizations before I, yeah. we set up our own global firm. And I've worked in spaces where sometimes people forget that um, as a woman, my voice is still critical. And, and so once I sat in a meeting with uh, colleagues from the West and one of them said, um, we're dealing with people who are so backward and he was talking about Africans. Yes. And I said, I'm sorry, do you forget I yes. am? Yes. Yes. And, and just because I speak in a certain manner and I communicate in a certain way doesn't mean that I am not proud of my heritage. So it's about constantly finding and navigating and educating and allowing myself also not to uh, fall into the um, instinct of uh, um, becoming defensive in certain spaces. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but more than that, it's about education. And one of the things I decided to do um, last year was to revive the story of Khadija. And so I started a vlog called The Khadija Way. Oh, okay. Um, educating women primarily and men by extension and young people on Islamic finance and sustainable development goals and saying, look, this has already been done. Yes. We have a great heritage and a great legacy. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. No. Um, we come from a bold history, a woman who um, was making money at yes. a time when people weren't expecting women to, women were chattels, yes. let alone business owners. That's right. That's right. And so I feel very strongly that if we are to make a difference, and I take this onus upon myself as a young Muslim woman, is it starts with the mind. Yeah. It doesn't matter what tools I give you, but if you still believe you are subservient, yeah. then subservient you remain. Yeah. If you feel, um, if you don't, even if you have tools and you still feel unworthy, then unworthy you will remain. And so not just as a Muslim woman, but as an African woman, it's become important. And I think maybe COVID is also um, a blessing in disguise. We're being forced to become self-reliant, right? right? We've, right. Got, we've got students coming up with ventilators we're not bringing these things in, right? We're making masks. Yes. As a community, we're coming together to make masks and distribute. We're taking pride in offering solutions to our own and not being so dependent on others. And I think, um, you know, that, that's how I choose to look at it um, and, and, and trying to make my own impact in the world. Yeah. Uh, Thank you, thank you so much uh, for your time this morning. I'm sure we'll be coming back to you. Pleasure is mine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I wish you a, a graceful Ramadan during this time. It, yeah, as you said, the COVID-19 makes it even more reflective. Uh, Absolutely. Because Absolutely. we so much time alone. But thank, thank you so much for your time this morning. I'm Absolutely. very grateful. Thank you very much, John. It's been a pleasure. And thank continue you. the good work. You, you too. You too, Rahman. Awesome.